you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 4. Give me that Bible there, Clayton. Thank you. Philippians chapter 4. We only have a few, we only have a few sermons left in the book of Philippians. So again, pray that Austin and I get some clarity as far as where we're going next in terms of walking through a book because we want it to be beneficial for the, for the church body and not just something that we're interested in preaching because that's a very real temptation. So Philippians chapter 4, let me do this. Let me back up just a little bit. I'm going to read through what Ben preached on last week because it kind of bleeds into what we'll be dealing with this week, or at least a portion of it. So, so Philippians chapter 4, backing up to verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. It says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there's a connection here with the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then the tag at the end of this section, at the end of this pericope, is that the God of peace will be with you. So here's my objective today. It's pretty simple because it's not a difficult text. Make, my, my objective today is to show you how absolute truth, how right thinking, how a right understanding, how actually knowing truth leads to peace. Because that's what we want, right? We want this peace that passes all understanding. We want to understand what does it take to get it? How do I get there? This is a very practical text. Some of the stuff that Paul writes is very rich in theology, very rich in doctrine, and some of it's hard to decipher. If you read through Romans and you're reading about the law, you're reading about sin, some of it becomes a little bit convoluted, you know, uh, to us that aren't masterful theologians. We read this, we're like, Holy Spirit, I need you to help me understand this stuff, you know, because a lot of it's difficult. It's, it's, it's written from a man not only under the inspiration of the Spirit, but a very intelligent man who's writing, who had a very close union with Christ and who had experienced many things. So fortunately, this is a fairly easy section, fortunately for me, and then fortunately for you. So again, I want to show how right understanding leads to ultimate peace. Not in terms of salvation. Yes, truth does lead to that because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So obviously Jesus is the way to salvation. But this is for those who are in Christ, those who are followers of Jesus, this is the application of truth that leads to a constant peace in your life, a peace that helps to eradicate everything else that tries to infiltrate, corrode, and corrupt your mind and your heart. He's offering you a peace 
that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's what we want. We need it for our marriages. We need it at our jobs. We need it every day of our life when we're just battling ourselves. I've been going through this season in my life where I just get annoyed at a lot of things. I'm just being honest and open with you. And I'm reading this last night, and I'm, even after I've studied it for a week, it just lands on me last night that I'm missing something. You know, I need to dwell on things right here that are critical for me to have a peace that eradicates whatever it is that brings frustration into my life, whatever it is that causes me sometimes to be a jerk. You know, I, I need this kind of peace. So I'm praying for myself, and I'm praying for you that God will be so gracious to us, and he'll give us what we need as far as endurance and discipline to activate this kind of peace in our life. So here's a basic thread that I want to pull for you, and that is to make truth a premium in your life. Make truth the highest priority. It is to be the filter through which all things are tested. I do not think that it's a coincidence that right here, what Paul is tagging at the end of all these things, he says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, he could have put truth anywhere in this list of things. He could have said whatever is honorable, whatever is true, just, pure. He could have said pure, just, commendable, true, but he said true because I think there is a necessity to have truth as the filter through which to see what things are actually commendable, what things are actually honorable because we don't live in a time like that. We don't live in a time of absolute truth. We live in a time of moral relativism and relativistic truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. So with that kind of philosophical bent, with that kind of approach to life, what it means is, you know what? What I find to be honorable is according to my truth, and what you deem to be honorable is according to your truth. So, truth. so we have these different perspectives, and they can't both be right. They can both be wrong, but they can't both be right because they are opposing truths. There are a few campaigns, there are a few crusades as, there are, as lofty as the pursuit or the quest for truth. I wear these glasses to help me. I mean, I, don't, I, I can see fairly well, so my eyes aren't that bad. But there are those probably in this room that have to wear glasses all the time because everything becomes a blur. Some of you could probably come up here, maybe Mark, you know, and he has to have his glasses on because maybe he couldn't read my, uh, he couldn't read uh, the, the font here. So he has to have these lenses on. But what happens is, though we can't see absolutely perfectly, because I believe even our vision is affected by the fall, but it sure gets us a lot closer to that, to where things are with greater clarity. So, uh, so you know, whoever comes up here that has glasses and can't see really well without them at all, puts these on, and all of a sudden you can see things closer to what they're meant to be. And this is how truth works. We want truth to be the lens. We want truth to be the filter that we put on, that we apply, and that we consider every other thing that we encounter. You want to know if something's truly honorable in the eyes of God, you have to filter it through truth. You want to understand the justice of God and know what true justice is all about, you have to filter it through the lenses of truth. You have to activate the truth filter. And this is what lenses do, and this is what I want to provide for you. Everything we do is on the basis of what we believe to be true. We've had this conversation before. You sat in the chair because your belief was that the chair would hold you up. You get in your vehicle because you believe that it is a viable means of transportation. You believe that it's maybe, you believe that it's better than walking. And you even believe more so than you believe against that you will not wreck going from point A to point B. 
If you got in your vehicle and you had the guarantee that you were going to wreck and die, you probably wouldn't get in the vehicle, at least not in your right mind. Same thing for me with planes. If I knew that the plane was going to go down, if someone said, hey, you get on this plane, we're going to crash it. I will not get on the plane because I'm operating under a truth. I'm operating under the knowledge that the plane is going to go down as best as I can figure out because of the information that I've received. So all the things that we do, what we believe, all these things are based on a truth. We process these things through a, through a truth filter. We, don't, we do this with parenting. We do this with parenting. My way of parenting and Sarah's way of parenting, you know, sometimes are a little different, so we have to talk about it. But our collective way of parenting is probably different than someone else's altogether in this room. We may not have an issue with spanking our children, but there are plenty of other folks that do take issue with spanking their children's. Their children's. Their children. It's, it's based on a truth because those who do not spank their children, they believe their truth. They believe that they're processing this through this filter saying, you know what, that's not the best route to go for my, my children. Now, it might be that they don't have an issue with that kind of punishment, but it just doesn't work best. That is the truth that you're operating under. Or it might be that you just believe that it's wrong, that it's abuse outright. And that is what you perceive to be true. And so you operate under what you have perceived to be true. Some roll through stop signs and others come to complete stops because one person's truth is that it doesn't really matter to stop completely and other persons believe that it's the law and that there will be consequences or they're held accountable by God or something like that. So we've had these fun discussions before, Evan. Some, some students work really hard to make great grades because they feel it will matter a great deal for their future and others don't because they don't feel like it really matters a whole lot. I had a professor tell me one time, he was the chairman of the communication department. Well, I won't say the college because we're recorded, but he, well, that's not a bad thing that he said. He told me, he said, look, if I'm hiring somebody because he was, he, he was a guy that hired folks, he wasn't an entrepreneur, but he was in a position through a lot of his life and the jobs that he held where he did the hiring and the firing. And he looked at me and he says, look, I'll take a mediocre student. He had me, he had me mediocre. You know, the, the, the light bulb went off. I said, I'm your man, I'm mediocre. He said, I will take a mediocre student who is managing school and managing a lot of other extracurricular activities and handling the stress, I will take them over someone who's just one-dimensional, excellent at grades, but really doesn't have relationships, really can't do anything else. He goes, I'll take those people any day. Now, he's operating under a truth that maybe that's a better scenario for him. But, but that's, uh, so, so, so <laughs> that, was, that was my scenario. So he feels the way he feels. Now, here's a final illustration. As Christians... We sometimes overlook little sins, in quotes, because we feel that compared to bigger sins, they're not as bad. They're not as bad. And you understand that is a truth filter. It's a faulty one, but it's still what you're processing. And we do it all the time. We would say, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't cheated on my spouse or I haven't, you know, I'm not going punching people in the faces though I feel like doing it. You know, I haven't you know, pulled out my kid's hair, you know, because I've been so angry, you know, I'm not stealing things, you know, uh, I haven't been, you know, you know, so all these big sins that we list, we say, well, I haven't done those things. And we compare and we say, well, I'll sweep this one under the rug because it's not as bad as that. And so we're operating under a false truth. You know, whatever your truth is, if you think that this sin is so much bigger than the other sin or so much less than the other sin in the eyes of God, then and it's a faulty truth. Now, let me just make a clarifying statement. There are different consequences to sin. That doesn't mean it's more desirable or less desirable in the eyes of God. 
but there are different consequences to different sins. If you steal a piece of gum as a 15-year-old versus murder someone as a 25-year-old, it's a whole new ballgame in terms of consequences. God hates sin, but there are different consequences for those sins. But don't let the different consequences lead you down a path of thinking, okay, so that must mean that this one is of lesser value or of greater value in the terms of sins in the eyes of God. So truth plays a huge factor in our being. And I think that's why Paul starts here. He says, brothers, whatever is true, to be sure he's thinking, dwell on things that are true. Dwell on the things of God. Dwell on the promises of scripture. Dwell on these absolutes, these things that are not subject to change because that's what an absolute truth is. Absolutely, he's saying dwell on these things, but I want to make the argument that in order to rightly understand things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, you have to filter it through the proper truth, through absolute truth, or what is honorable uh, for someone else will not be honorable for the other person because they have two different truths that are processing this through. So the way we filter, the way we process truth will determine the things that are honorable, commendable, lovely, and praiseworthy. Let me give you another example. And I'm just going to be very, very blunt with this. So there is a sex-crazed culture now, and, and has been forever, basically, but it seems to manifest itself even more so today. But I'm thinking back to when I was, when I was a, a young man, when I was in high school or, or something like that. I remember sitting in certain circles with my peers and hearing stories, and I want to be careful how I word this, Hearing certain hearing of stories of of you know of this guy's interaction with the opposite sex and and where he was able to get with the opposite sex if you know what I'm saying and he was commended and honored and venerated for how far he was able to go you know I didn't sit in circles with women and hear them talk about that so I'm not putting that on a woman but I know the guys that I ran with sometimes, I would hear these type of stories. When I played ball with folks, we'd sit around and you'd hear things like that. And there would be this braggadociousness behind these claims. Oh, I was able to do this. Hmm, I did this. Oh man, you're the man. High fives, man, you my dog. All this kind of stuff. Boys talk like that for some reason. And so this is, this is what I would hear. you know. And, and I knew this is wrong, but now I'm seeing things differently. And I'm like, you know what? They view this as commendable. They see this as, as an honorable thing. They're high-fiving each other as a visible, physical manifestation of their, of their uh, approval and of their, their commending. And the world around us honors, and vener- honors all kinds of people for different things, for gender transformations. This has been said about Bruce Jenner after the, uh, the gender reassignment surgery. Quote, it's fantastic when men and women are open like this and willing to share their journey. Quote, this woman is brave and incredible for coming out in this way. She's venerated or he's venerated. He's applauded for this brave movement. Same-sex marriages. We do the same thing today. His culture is the world is processing through a truth, albeit a moral relativistic truth, not an absolute truth, a faulty truth. Uh, that's an oxymoron, I understand that. But they're processing it through what they believe to be true. So they see through that lenses. They can't understand. They can't process the way that we're processing because they don't have an objective standard of morality because they don't have an absolute truth. 
And that's the beauty of truth, is it provides you an objective standard of morality. This is where the atheistic argument fails, because they say nothing really matters, nothing has value. There's no objective standard for morality. So then it all, it it causes all this inconsistency because atheists won't live according to their claim. They won't live in the way that they believe. They treat people as though they have value when the basis of atheism says you absolutely don't have value because you're just fizzing. You're just cells that are just fizzing and one day you will fizz out. But they're looking through a wrong lens, leaving a spouse because you're unhappy. And I mean a very specific context that someone might boast in. Hey, cut your losses and move on. I'm not talking about infidelity. I'm not getting into those conversations. I mean two people. One person is just like, I'm bored with this. And so maybe some women rally around one woman and say, you know what? You deserve to be happy. Good for you for taking care of you. Good for you. It's looking through the wrong lens. It's operating under the wrong truth. Even abortion is done this way. Women are considered to be brave, brave, and they're venerated, a lot of them, because she had the nerve, the guts, the bravery to consider herself and to take care of herself rather than allow herself, you know, to fall into despair and to have to take care of things when she's not ready. And so there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nasty, nasty web that has been woven since Genesis 3 with the fall. Right thinking is the forerunner to right behavior. You've heard it said before, right thinking leads to right behavior or orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. You know, it's the way you think will determine the way you act, the way you live and the way you move and the way you have your being. And I would argue that Paul absolutely considers that when he says this. Listen, you wanna do something that's honorable? You need to do what actually is honorable. You have to process it through the right truth filter We live in a world that's growing steadily intolerant of absolute truth. Absolute truth, again, is unchanging fact. It does not change and therefore is a strong objective standard of morality, but relative truth is a preferential and an emotional standard. It's a a standard that is capricious, which means it's subject to change and it's dangerous. So understand the difference. Absolute truth, and I know this is kind of technical and and, and philosophical and all this fun stuff, but hang with me because the application here is, is helpful but you've got absolute truth, you've got, you've got uh, moral relativism, and the relativism side of it, again, it is preferential, it is emotional. Why? Because it's not based on any standard of morality, no, no concrete absolute standard of measure. It says however you feel will determine how you're responding, how you're viewing, what your worldview will be. Let me define moral relativism for you. It's the view that ethical standards Morality and positions of right or wrong are culturally based and therefore subject to a person's individual choice. In other words, you decide what is right for you and I'll decide what is right for me. And if you take it to its you know, far-reaching extent, I can pull up to that stop sign again and say, I don't believe that stop means stop for me. I believe it's not red. I believe it's not actually stop, it's go. You, know, you can really chase this down an endless down an endless abyss, and it just falls apart. But at the end of the day, it has no objective standard for morality. It's unpredictable, it's capricious, it's subject to change, and it's very, very dangerous. For the abortion advocate, their truth is that a woman has a right to her own body. That's their truth. Moral relativism leads them to that place to say, you know what? 
I deny absolute truth, which says, I belong to Jesus, that I know, O Lord, a man's life is not his own and is not for man to direct his steps in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10, 23, I believe. It, it negates those things. I am his and he is mine. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. It denies a lot of these absolute truth and it embraces what is most palatable, what is most preferential. And it lives in accordance with that. So there's the side that says their truth is a woman, that a woman has a right to her own body. Also, the living being inside of them does not have the same value as the woman that's carrying the child. That is a truth that they operate under. That the woman carrying has more value and the child that's living inside doesn't have as much value. So that's a way to rationalize the heinous act of abortion. Capital punishment is a good argument. Those four capital punishment, here's their truth, is that capital punishment is modeled in the scripture. And this is more of an absolute basis. Capital punishment is modeled in the scripture in that God set governing system in place to administer justice or someone might say someone may simply believe that you pay a life for a life. There are Christians that disagree with capital punishment. There are Christians that agree with capital punishment. What truth are they coming from? Everybody comes from some kind of truth. Our responsibility is to come from absolute truth, to come from what's clear, what's unchanging, what's eternal. Those against capital punishment, their truth is that all life is valuable and no one should be put to death. Or, and they would make a biblical argument for that maybe, or that death is an easy way out and the condemned must spend their life paying for their crime. So maybe that's their truth. I believe that death is too easy a punishment. They need to spend their life in suffering, in solitude, in fear, in paranoia, to at least scrape the surface of atoning for what they've done. You know that arguments are now being made for pedophilia as a, as a natural sexual orientation. And here's what I'll say before I read some of these things. I wanna be, be very careful when I read this that I'm not citing with this, but in a sense, I would say it's not natural to the way men were made, but I would say it is a natural byproduct of the fallen state of man. So not natural as in God's original intent, but natural to the fallen state of man. If you say, hey, I'm a broken person, I would say, naturally. You say, hey, I've sinned today. Well, of course you have, because you're broken, you're fallen. The natural byproduct of being a fallen, broken person is brokenness, is fallenness, is transgression, is sin. So there is a philosophical leaning that considers truth to be relative to each person and that necessarily leads to an all bets are off kind of scenario. This is, this is where it starts to go. This is the danger of forsaking an absolute truth. He says, while, while I, Alan, while I hate pedophilia and while I hate any type of abuse, sexual or otherwise, of children, the worldview of moral relativism cannot deem it wrong. If your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, how can someone look at them and say, well, you're wrong? Is declaring someone to be wrong not an absolute truth? Are they not trying to make an absolute claim? So one side wants to explain away pedophilia by saying it's a mental disorder and that's their truth or it's just wrong. While the other side operates on, a, on its wrongness being rooted in the moral laws presented in, presented in the Bible. I mean, that would be my position. 
is absolutely it's wrong. But I don't think it's wrong just because of a preference. I think it's wrong because there's an absolute there's an absolute uh, there's an absoluteness to it in the scriptures. You know, sin is, sin is 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 dark and it's dirty and it's awful. But this is where moral relativism leads to things like that. This is why truth matters. So I want to spend some time walking through that. I know it can, I know it's a, a little heady, I guess, but I think it's important to understand if you veer away from an absolute truth and if you move to more to a moral, moral relativistic or a preferential truth that is dangerous and capricious and changes all the time, then you're in very, very dangerous waters. So this is why truth matters. Moving back to the text, that through the lens of truth, we can recognize, we can practice, and we can benefit from the things that are right and good in the eyes of God. Because this is what Paul wants. He says, look, whatever's true, so you're processing through this truth filter, and you're able to see things that are honorable. You're able to decipher, yes, that's actually honorable, that's actually worthy of honor. Rather than how far this young man is bragging, that rather than what this young man is bragging about with this opposite sex, rather than honoring or venerating someone like that or anything, let's say these guys, you know, let's say these guys jump somebody else and they go and they brag about how they beat this guy within an inch of his life. You know, rather than someone looking through that wrong filter and saying, let's, let's venerate these, let's consider all the, we have to look through the right truth filter and say, I can now see what is actually honorable. And Paul gives us these examples. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already shown you in the letter to the Philippians. So let me just walk you through this so you can see. He's, he's like, okay, you know truth. And so based on this truth filter, here's what things are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, praiseworthy, and excellent. He has shown them truth. He acknowledged the power of the gospel. He says, as long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. Do you remember that from, from the earlier chapters of Philippians? Remember, he says, there are others who come in and they preach from selfish ambition. Their motives are not pure. But he says, you know what? As long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. And what he's saying there is that the gospel message is greater than the messenger itself. So he's boasting in the power of the gospel right there in the book of Philippians. And he said, I've shown you truth. You know gospel truth. You know the filter that you have to look through these things. He's shown them what is honorable. He mentions to honor Timothy and he mentions to honor Epaphroditus. He says, these men who are willing to give their lives for the gospel, that's worthy of honor. That's an honorable thing. And you remember several weeks ago where we talked about men of honor and we said, yes, it's an honorable thing to give your life for your country. It's an honorable thing to do that. It's honorable to go and to sign up and say, you know what, I value these freedoms, so I'm gonna go and I'm gonna serve my country by life or by death. And that is honorable, but it doesn't hold a candle to the honor and the veneration that is deserving to those who would give their lives for the gospel. It's apples and oranges. Both are honorable, but one's on a whole different scale, but the world doesn't operate by that truth. Living and dying for the gospel is foolishness. By the way, the Bible says such things are foolishness to those who are perishing. And those who are perishing are those who don't have that truth, an absolute truth filter the process through. So Paul has explained, I'm showing you what's, what's honorable. He's shown them what is just. In Philippians 3, 18 and 19, he starts to talk about the negative influences that we spoke of a few weeks ago. He said these negative influences, he says that they are enemies of the cross. They're enemies of the cross. He says their God is their belly. He says their destruction is, uh, he says their end is destruction. That's justice. 
he's recognizing the justice of God. He's saying these things are just. If someone is anti-Christ, if someone is in opposition to Christ, in opposition to the cross, therefore in opposition to the gospel, he said it is just. It is just that their end would be destruction. That is a just thing. Anyone who spends eternity separated from God, that is a just thing. That is fair. That is right. Because we've committed the crime. So he shows them just. He shows them things that were, that were pure. Paul shows them the gospel in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. He shows them lovely things. Do you remember in Philippians 3, 12 where he says that Christ has made him his own? He said, Christ made me his own. I mean, how much, how much more lovely do statements get that Christ made you his? You didn't make him yours in that sense. He made you his. He did the work and he brought you into himself into a right relationship with God. The things that are excellent, the things that are commendable, the things that are praiseworthy. He mentions Christ's power to transform our lowly bodies to glorified bodies. He says, hey, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is coming. There's a hope. There's a promise. These things are commendable. These things are excellent. He says, the peace of God that will guard your hearts in Christ. This is excellent. This is good. And over and over and over again throughout the first four chapters of Philippians, Paul has shown us things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, excellent, and praiseworthy. Over and over again. So he's not giving them something and an expectation that he hasn't already shown them the way to. He's not expecting these things out of them without the possibility of actually achieving it. And he gives them an instruction. He says, you know, these, here's your list. Here's your list. And he says, I want you to do something with this list. I want you to think on these things. He says, I want you to think on these things. I want you to process these things. I want you to actually do something with it. And to think on these things means to take account of these things, to take them into account. We take things to account all the time. And our situations are taken into account all the time. If you're, going and you're, uh, if you're going and you're applying for a job, you're gonna meet with a potential employer, m- most likely, or someone else. Either way, someone that has some kind of authority or someone who's gonna bring your information to someone else who has authority to make the, make the decision to hire you. But what are they gonna take into account? Experience, credentials, attitude. They might go to your Facebook and see what kind of stuff you post, what kind of company you keep, I don't know. There's all that kind of stuff that they might consider that I've heard employers consider these days. They're going to take into account all things. When you're looking for a church home, hopefully when you're looking for a church home, you're not just looking for whether or not they have a thriving youth ministry or just looking for whether or not they have a children's ministry or just looking for whether or not they serve good coffee or whether they have a great pastor. You're not just looking for one thing or should not be looking for one thing above these other things. Hopefully you're considering the entire body of the church what everything's happening, how they're functioning, what's going on. You're taking all these things to account when you come in here. You're considering, and they're having influence on your decision. They're weighing in on your decision, and that is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, you need to reflect on these things to the degree that they weigh in on all that you do, that they have such influence that you can apply these things and that they take effect in your life so that, here it comes again, at the end of all things, your life is on display as a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's given us a formula for function. This is what this is. He's saying, I'm giving you this formula. I'm giving you this algorithm, whatever. You just have to plug it in. 
And this will help you function in a way that you need. You want the God of peace to be with you. You want the peace that passes all understanding to guard your hearts and to guard your minds in Christ Jesus. And he's saying, and this is how you get it. This is how you get it. You get it by thinking on these things, but he doesn't just say thinking. He makes the argument that your thinking should lead to doing. Your thinking should lead to doing. He says, practice these things. And if you just want to go back to the text, you practice what? Practice counting all things as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. Practice looking out for the interest of others, which is what Austin and I have tried to pitch to you over and over again, week after week, because it's so critical to the body of the church. Practice these things, standing firm in the faith and striving side by side for the gospel with one another. These are instructions he's already given in the letter. He's saying, practice these things, these things that you have learned from me, these things that have been revealed to you by me. Practice these things. So you go back and you see, not just in Philippians, but in the whole Bible, because the application is the same. What is he saying to do? What instructions are, is he giving me? He's telling me to think on certain things. And then here's how these things go from thought to deed. He says, regard others as more important than yourselves. Essentially, he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel and the God of peace will be with you. There's a natural correlation between filling our minds and meditations with the things with, uh, with these things and receiving peace. These things are interconnected. It's like two bookends that he's given us. He says in, in, in chapter four, verses six to seven, he says, again, again, he says, the, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Let me, let me just read it. It's here somewhere. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a correlation between doing that, not to mention praying and, and making your petitions and supplications in the, in the previous verses there, but there's a correlation between those things and receiving the peace of God. But I'm willing to say, I think sometimes, I know in my life and maybe in your life, and this would be my exhortation to you, be careful of being so one-sided with this as I think we, we can be, and that is sitting doing nothing Rather than thinking on these things and rather than practicing these things, we're just hoping that somehow the peace of God that passes all understanding will wave over us and at that point, we'll have our hearts and our minds guarded and the God of peace is with us. But that doesn't seem to be the way the apostle says these things come about. He says, think on these things. Take these things into the, to account Put them on the scale. Let them influence you. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He demands action. He says, if you do these things, the byproduct, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The organization of the text is not happenstance. The organization of the text is divine. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it leads me to believe, just as someone trying to interpret this, is that you want the peace of God that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus and your conversations and your thought life and your activities and all of these things in your marriages. You want that to happen? Then my question is, how are you doing at practicing and thinking on such things? Because that seems to be the formula for the peace of God that passes all understanding in your life. In what way will God's peace be with us? It will guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, and I'll explain that. It says it will guard your hearts and mind in Christ. The heart 
and the mind of a believer is not a shared space. It's not a shared space between the things of God and the things of the world. You understand how that could be very difficult? How can your mind be set on the things of the world while at the same time your mind being set on the things of God? They're two opposing forces. So how in the world can we expect to have any kind of peace when our mind is set on the world? What does it say about those whose mind is set on the world or is set on earthly things? Paul, just a few verses before, calls them enemies of the cross. So it's a big deal when our mind is set on earthly things. It's a big deal when we're trying to have a shared space in our mind and in our heart between the things of God and the things of the world. I believe God is saying that filling our minds and hearts with things that are true, things that are lovely, and the rest of this list will work to eradicate the things that labor to corrode and to corrupt our mind and our hearts. The enemy is most often more committed to destruction than you are to the gospel. That's a hard thing to say, but do you understand that? The enemy is more committed to the destruction of your life than you are to the gospel. So we have to have our minds set on these things always. Do you think the enemy takes a nap? Do you think that he says, you know what, I'm gonna let them be? No, he's ruthless. He doesn't exhaust himself. He is always hating, always working against, always trying to win because ultimately as the deceiver, he's deceived himself. And he is more committed to destruction than you are to the gospel. And that's for everybody because we're broken, fallen, imperfect people. So naturally, as a byproduct of sin, we're not 100% committed to the gospel. But oh, should we strive for that? Because if we want the peace of God that passes all understanding and that guards our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus and helps us to think rightly when we're tempted to veer off into a world of wrong thinking, that helps us to behave rightly when we're always tempted to behave in a fashion that doesn't represent Jesus and doesn't live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I just want to make a final application. When temptations come our way, what plan do you have in place to fight against those temptations? Any elite specialist or tactical force or team, they have plans and contingency plans upon contingency plans for when things do not go the way that they planned initially. That's the way it is. You would be foolish not to have some kind of contingency in your life. And this is the way the military works. Many people make the mistake of waiting until the temptation is pressing down on them before they decide to take action. My exhortation, I think the Bible's exhortation is, you got to plan ahead. Don't sit there and say, you know what? Oh, this is on me. What am I going to do? Most of the time, you will lose the battle. You will fail over and over again. I speak from experience. It only makes sense to say, I need to be equipped. I need to be fighting preemptively. I need to put things in my life. And how do I do it? By constantly thinking on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Think on such things things. Make a list. I have this journal where I started, I have a page dedicated to each one of these things, and I'm trying to write out things as God shows me, his excellencies, his, his things that are praiseworthy, truth, all of these things. I'm trying to think on things that God has done in my life. I'm trying to have this in my mind so that 
when the enemy comes with, a, with an onslaught, when he comes with an attack, I'm more ready for the battle than if I were just sitting idly waiting on him to attack. I have to have a defense. The word practice, when he says practice these things, it connotes repetitious action. We cannot afford to be weekend warriors. I do not think, unless God just gives this special dose of grace, which he, he, he does and he can, I just don't think, according to the text, that the way to go about it is to say, well, I'm gonna get serious on the weekend or I'm gonna process or meditate on these things on Sundays when we need it every single day. Otherwise, you set yourself up for failure. But we want the peace of God to guard our hearts and to guard our minds in Christ Jesus. So if you wanna do that, Paul gives us the formula. He makes it simple. He says, think on these things. Think on it and then practice these things. To summarize, do your best to cherish and honor and obey the word of God. And then we find peace. We find peace because we are working preemptively to fight against the flaming arrows of the enemy that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that you would cause our minds to be so enamored by things that are true, by things that are honorable and pure and lovely and just, or these things that represent your character. Lord, as we look through Old Testament passages and you just show your nature over and over and over again, May those things be burned into our memories. And may we practice these things. And may we reflect and take into account all of these things. Or may we practice being honorable like Paul and like Epaphroditus and Timothy. May we practice justice, filter through the right truth. Or may we be given to things that are lovely in the way that we treat our friends and the way that we treat our children and the way that we treat our spouses. May they be commendable and honorable. Lord, whether it's giving our life for the sake of the gospel or, or living our life to honor Jesus as a representation and a reflection and a recipient of the gospel. Help us to do those things. Help us to practice those things, Lord, so that you would be glorified, so that the peace of God, peace of God will, will be in our hearts and will guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, and so that we can reflect you well and show a world that there's something different, that there is an absolute truth, and it's critical that it governs everything in our life because it's the only thing that provides us for, a, for, for, for an objective standard of morality, of life and practice. Otherwise, it's meaningless, and we're wasting our time on something that's not real. Lord, I believe that it's real and I believe your desire is that we follow your word and I believe that you're, you have our best interest and I believe that you will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus because, because we're in Christ. I believe that you will do those things because you love us. And Lord, I'm doing my best to just operate under truth. Lord, help us to love truth, to see truth, and to live according to what is true. Father, we thank you and we ask that you would give us endurance to honor you throughout the rest of our day and all that we do. May we live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.